good morning and praise the Lord. I hope you slept well. I slept pretty good. I think I'm starting to get back on track. I'm not quite where I want to be yet with jet lag recovery, but I'm doing pretty good. I hope you're doing okay. I've been praying for you. I go through the list. I have a terrible memory, unfortunately. I am working on it. I've got a couple apps that I'm working on my memory with. <laughs> but I do pray for you when I when your name comes up in this in these groups. I see your name and I pray for you. I'm so thankful for you. We're continuing in our look at Jesus chronologically through all four Gospels. And I finished yesterday talking about the disciples. And I love, love, love the story of Jesus meeting Nathaniel. Oh my goodness, I love it so much. And if you've not read John 1, verses 46 through 51, which is where that story is, please read it. You will do yourself a favor. But we go from Jesus having received a couple of disciples into his life, and then... Uh, I'm plugging from them and going into the wilderness. And that's a different recording. And then he comes out of the wilderness. He reconnects with those couple of disciples that he met before he went in. And then he starts meeting more disciples as people start bringing him more disciples. And then we find in John chapter 2, and that's what we're going to be going through today, a portion of John chapter 2. And this is Jesus' first miracle. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat that I'm going to be inserting my upbringing and what I was taught growing up and I will align it what I believe is a healthy and right way to live. So for those who do not believe the same as I do, this is, this may trigger you a little bit. I'm asking you to, um, don't choke chew as my dad used to say, uh, so John chapter 2, verse 1, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. So now he has some of his disciples. At this point, he does not actually have all 12, but he has the disciples that he has. And I actually don't know the exact number. I just know that it was later on. Um, we looked at 
yesterday in the disciples um, study about the disciples coming to him, how much further along Matthew came on the scene and some of the others. But the disciples that were with him, they were called to this marriage. And one of the places I'm going to start meddling is in the word marriage. So they're called to this marriage. And I have um, a bit of a um, uh, personal, very personal. I don't believe this is a biblical. I'm Like Paul says, this is my personal opinion. This is not of the Lord. <laughs> Paul, Paul said this is just because I'm, I am a spiritual leader. I do have personal opinions here. And so this is my personal opinion. I feel like, um, I feel like we have evolved weddings to be such a show. And I feel like that our shows are, uh, damaging to our, 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 uh, monetary goals. I think the large amounts of money people put toward weddings could just as easily go to a down payment on a house or maybe uh, opening a savings account to save toward a piece of land. <laughs> I know I've got a very, a very different point of view about weddings. I just don't like for the show weddings have become. However, it cannot be lost on us that Christ's introduction into operating in the miraculous was at a marriage. Now, I love that they were calling it a marriage instead of a wedding. Um, but nevertheless, here's another personal situation. So for those of you that don't know, um, I am divorced and I hate it. There's a, once you're in my shoes, you get why God said through the prophet that he hates divorce. So, so, so many reasons that divorce, I don't believe is the fix. I don't believe is the, the smart way to go. Um, but I don't, I don't want to dwell on that, but I will, I'm pointing that out only to say that due, due to my experience, I am aware that I'm absolutely jaded on romance and marriage. So I am speaking from that perspective. Um, you know, I, I, I have a hard time believing in romance and anyway, I'm, I'm just being transparent. So because of that, uh, I, you know, like, and, and also because of, of my view that, that people spend too much money on weddings, right? So <laughs> I've got this double fold thing going on here and I, I'm going to get back to the scripture. Just give me a second. Uh, I, I was recently in two 
marriage situations where, where two couples were going to be getting married. This is, they were separated by a few months apiece. And I just felt so confident that there was like, just go to the courthouse and get married. You know, it's no big deal. I, you know, I got this feeling about weddings being a show and, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what I believe about romance, the reality of it. <laughs> so I'm just like, just go get a piece of paper. And um, both my brother-in-law, who pastors in Denellen, and my brother, who pastors in Bellevue, um, they both were conveying to me the sacredness of marriage and that it is more than a paper. And because it's more than a paper and because it's ordained of God, the same way we, in talking to God, we, we engage spiritually with God. We, we become very spiritually minded when we pray for somebody who is sick. And so because of that, we should look at the marriage ceremony as sacred also and take the time to meet with a spiritual leader and let there be sanctity, let there be prayer. And I was so thankful for that point of direction and that insight and that experience. Um, and I just, it's very beautiful that Christ's and step into the miraculous was at a marriage. And then he, through the scripture, goes on multiple times to talk about his own marriage. Now we know Christ didn't marry on the earth, but we, we hear scriptures about the marriage supper of the lamb, the lamb, of course, being Jesus Christ that was slain from the foundation of the world. And so this, this miracle that occurred at a marriage is beautiful and I might not get modern romance or or in my own flesh and due to my own experiences I might not fully understand how to and it is a how to I just don't know how to um, understand it but I do emotionally get a heart flutter when I think about Jesus at this marriage. So I'm not completely dead inside. <laughs> uh, so verse three, let's move on. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. <laughs> Sometimes my son says this because he knows I think it's a hilarious statement. This King James Version line, Woman, what have I to do with thee? <laughs> Mine hour is not yet come. You know, Jesus was both God and man. God, Jesus was God, the creator of the universe, robed in flesh. He was God manifest in the flesh. This is who Jesus was. And yet there was this, this earthly 
part of him, this DNA. He was without sin, yet he had a baptism of repentance. And he was God in the flesh, and yet he pulled himself away to be alone and have moments of prayer. And this statement, mine hour is not yet come. I believe him. He is Jesus. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He knows all things. He said to Nathaniel, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. <laughs> he is the I am, the same I am that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. This is who we're talking about. And I'm, I'm not sure if this was his nature. And we all know what it's like to feel inferior and not feel up to par. I'm not sure if this was his nature speaking, but he said, my hour has not yet come. And yet it had come because he, he, he does. We know he's about to turn water to wine. He's about to do the miraculous. But I, it just makes me love him so. I, it just makes me feel so intrigued by him that this almighty God, he truly was touched with the feelings of our infirmities and was tempted in all points like as we are. He, he truly felt those inadequ same inadequacies that we feel. We may feel a calling to ministry. We may know, yeah, I need to work for the Lord, but it's not time yet. My hour is not yet come. And then we move to verse 5, where his mother acts like <laughs> he didn't say anything. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. She just, I can, I, I, again, I'm projecting myself, my experience, my life onto this scenario. And I could just see Madison or Morgan saying, oh, I can't, I don't know how. And me just rolling my eyes and just being like, just do it. I was a just do it mom. Like I was very into, if I say you can, you can. So you at least start trying. <laughs> and I'm glad I was, and I'm so glad Mary was, because this is something for parents to recognize the power that you have with your children. My parents did this with us in ministry. They, um, for instance, is, is my brother. Now, I personally was a, I am a people pleaser, and so if I know somebody wants something done, I'm going to try to do it to the best of my ability if I can. Um, and that it's not perfect. I'm not a perfectionist 90% of the time. I'm not a perfectionist. So if it's not done as perfectly as I imagine the person to want it, that's fine with me. Like you said, do it. Here it is. It's the best I could do. Enjoy it. Take it or leave it. I don't care. Uh, so when my mother, my parents started training us to be used of the Lord, to be confident in areas of ministry, when we were toddlers, she put a mic in my hand at three years old 
and had me sing. She had been practicing with me for weeks and weeks when we would drive around, you know, in town. She would sing with me while I was in the car. And so my first song, I said the words, I am a one God, apostolic, tongue-talking, holy, ruler, born again, heaven-bound believer in the liberated power of Jesus' name. <laughs> I was three. And that was the first song I sang in church. And by the way, that's only one line. That song Lance Appleton sing keeps going with all those syllables. So I was very excited about it. I loved it from that is my earliest one of my earliest memories and there's nothing but love in that memory and excitement. Now my brother was the complete opposite. She had also been training him to sing a song called I'm a poor poor rich man and my brother, he's now my pastor, uh, but since I'm referring to him in my and our role as siblings, I'm just going to call him Jason, but uh, I usually call him pastor. But Jason was so cute. He had a little bit of a speech impediment going on, and uh, he didn't say his R's, so he would say, I'm a po-po-witch man. I'm a po-po-witch man. And, uh, so cute. So when it was his turn to sing, he absolutely was refusing. And he was older than I was. I think he was about five, maybe six. <laughs> and my mother did a very merry thing here, like Mary, the mother of Jesus. He was refusing to, and she was like, you're doing it. Just go do it. And she actually told him, if you do it, I will buy you a G.I. Joe. He loved his G.I. Joe toys. I will buy you a G.I. Joe. If you don't do it, you're getting spanked. <laughs> he sang it. He got his G.I. Joe toy. And, uh, of course, if you know him today, he has no intimidation of a mic. He's an amazing, he's one of the best preachers in the Pentecostal movement. I love his preaching. And he's a great singer. I love to sing with him. I love to hear him sing. But my mother had to ignore him. And that is my encouragement to you parents as well. When your children are, when you are confident, no, you can do this. I've, I've heard you do it in private. I've seen you do it. No, you can do it. You might have to ignore them saying, mine hour is not yet come and just insist that they do it. And from Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Naomi, the mother of Jason. <laughs> it, it, to me, it's how it's done. It's how I raised Morgan and Madison as well. It's just a philosophy that I, that I lived by. Verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. I'm going to read the NLT translation of this. Um, John 2, 6 NLT says, Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial, cere <laughs> ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Now, um, when I was in Israel, one of the places that we went for a tour included included one of these stone water pots 
and they are huge. And the stone, we're not talking about clay. A clay pot is lighter than a stone pot. A stone water pot is a huge boulder that has been uh, chiseled out to make a bowl, to make a huge container. And carrying these things, carrying these things was no simple task. It was heavy. And they remained at the entrance. And so when people, the ceremonial washing was when people came in the door, you, you may remember the story where Jesus, when G, when the woman came in and, and washed Jesus feet and the people criticized him for allowing her to do that. And he said to his host, you gave me no water to wash my feet. The water to wash your feet, the ceremonial washing is what these these stone water pots were used for and they were at the front door. So you didn't put your feet directly into the pots, but they, the pots were at the front door and they were always filled with water for the purpose of washing your guests feet. They would dip water out into a smaller vessel and then you could wash your feet there. Of course they weren't, um, they didn't have Nike completely surrounding their feet. So it was common in the non-paved uh, history of our existence for your feet to get very dirty and, and they would clean their feet before they would go in people's houses. And so this was the water pots of stone that Jesus had them fill. In verse 7, Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. These washing pots that were used to clean dirty feet. And this is very symbolic of the remission of our sins that happens at baptism. When we are baptized in Jesus name, Peter said, you are baptized in Jesus name for the remission of sins. And so I love that Christ's first miracle includes this very symbolic situation where he used these water pots that were used for cleaning. And there's more symbolism to come. Let me keep reading. In uh, verse 7, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear into the governor of the feast and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men are well drunk, I want to point that out when they are well drunk then that which is worse but thou hast kept the good wine until now now i'm going to move into some triggering information right now i want to talk about a a foundational part of the holiness movement 
in Christianity. When I say the holiness movement, I'm going all the way back to Puritans when they were trying to find a place where they could live a lifestyle that was different than the society around them. I want to move into the early 1900s where the holiness movement, no matter what denomination people were, they began to try to live more separated than the world around them. And that they that was called the holiness movement. And out of that holiness movement sprang the Azusa revival that happened in Los Angeles, California. And I can't get into the history of, of that. I love it. That's one of my favorite topics I love to teach about is, is that history. But part of that is not drinking alcoholic beverages. My computer just alerted me that I've got to plug in or else I'm going to lose my battery power. So I'm going to address, I'm going to address for a moment here why I do not drink alcoholic beverages. Ephesians 5.8 says, be not drunk with wine. First Timothy 3, 3 says that I not be given to wine. First Timothy 3, 8 says not given to much wine. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. I can't give every scripture, but I am going to buckshot these out here and just put them out here. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5 says, it is not for kings to drink wine lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment. So they're saying not to drink wine. Kings that are going to have to pass judgment, that are going to have to make major decisions, don't let your judgment be tainted by drinking wine. Leviticus 10.9 tells priests, do not drink wine nor strong drink. And I'm going to pause. I can't get into this in a detailed way for time, but it says do not drink wine nor strong drink. And so we know from that, that just because the scripture King James version, especially uses the word wine does not mean it's alcoholic. But if Proverbs 31 is talking to Kings and Leviticus 10 is talking to priests, revelations, revelation one and six and Revelation 5 and 10 lets us know that he has made us kings and priests. And therefore, that instruction is for me. That instruction is for me to not pervert my judgment. And Proverbs 31, 6 matches 1 Timothy 5, 23. In 1 Timothy 5, 23, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and he tells to him, Drink no longer water. And there's a reason for that. It's because it was common for water to be contaminated. We, we still see that now. We have fundraisers now where we raise funds to go help villages in third world countries have pure drinking water. Paul is saying to Timothy, 
drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Again, just because it uses the word wine does not mean it has to be alcoholic. But use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. And we know this is medicinal because it says for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Proverbs 31, 6 and 1 Timothy 5, 23 is talking about wine being prescribed as a medicine and wine not being used as an entertainment or a luxury. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And Noah that man who was used of God to save his family would give a hearty amen to Proverbs 20 verse 1 because it was in his tending of a vineyard and drinking wine, whether he meant to get drunk or not. I don't know, but what I do know is that it cost Noah unity within his family. And I know that we live in a society where Christians who want to sip alcoholic wine with a clear conscience say, well, it's okay if we do it in moderation. Even in our modern society, I don't know of a spiritual leader who says it's okay to be drunk, to be drunken, to be intoxicated. And I'm going to agree with you that drunkenness is not wise for a Christian. So why would Jesus make a wine for people who were, who are described as well drunk and indulge in making them further into intoxicated? There is no good light anywhere in scripture that approves of a person being intoxicated. I do not believe that the wine Jesus made further intoxicated people just because there's so many scriptures that do not approve of intoxication. I believe the wine Jesus made, it tasted so good because it tasted as the freshest squeezed non-alcoholic juice they had ever had. If Jesus did anything in that scenario, he started weaning them off of their well-drunk state. That's my belief. But there's symbolic aspects of this too. Just like the way what he used was symbolic of cleansing that baptism does. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Ghost was poured out... Acts chapter 2, verse 13, it said, Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Because the Holy Ghost truly gives you a kind of joy. I have, I have been praying in the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues since I was five years old. And I can tell you that there are places where you can pray in that degree of depth that you feel heady 
You feel such joy. The filter is gone. You don't care what people think about you laughing in the spirit, singing in the spirit, dancing in the spirit. (laughs) The first miracle held both the prophetic signs of baptism and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And I love that so very much. I'm going to also point out that there's this parenthesis that says the servants which drew the water knew that wine had come from water. They knew. They drew the water to fill up those huge stone water pots. They knew it was nothing but water. It was the same water they put in those pots every morning so that when guests would come to that house, they would have some water there to wash their guests' feet. They knew it was just water. Servants always know more than the public at large. Be a servant in the kingdom of God. Serve in every capacity you can. Serve in any and every way you can. In the spirit of God, in the presence of God, at the house of God. Because servants always know more than the general public. And verse 11 is what I'm going to end with. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So first of all, yay, Mama Mary for for pushing him over that line. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. The word glory, he was showing forth his glory in this miraculous moment. And it, the word glory does mean splendor. It means brightness. It means magnificence, excellence, majesty. So he began to manifest his splendor, his magnificence, his majesty when he performed this miracle. But this word glory that we get from a Greek word that is D-O-X, doxa, something along the lines of doxa. But it also means opinion, judgment, and view. He manifested his ability to hold an opinion, his ability to have judgment, and his ability to show his viewpoint. As we follow after Christ, this is a place we come to as well. Yesterday, the thing we looked at was about being a disciple, the disciples that gathered to Jesus, and then those disciples, they were trained specifically to further take his training to the masses they were it was by their word that we have come to Jesus and so when we begin to manifest the glory of God we manifest the glory of God and that glory is a splendor it is a brightness you are the light of the world we we give forth excellence in our life But we also manifest his glory by having an opinion, by 
having a judgment call, by having a viewpoint. When we in this world, in our society, that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, when we take a stand and say, this is what the scripture says, that is okay. That's a part of being a Christian. And it's a part of how we show the world his glory. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you have a good day in the Lord. God bless you.